This talk is part two of the last talk I did on understanding change. So remembering that chant that we did, all conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. Uh, The talk is about the happiness of accepting life as it is. And I'd like to just go over a little bit of the talk that I did before, just certain of the ideas behind it. Remembering that the Buddha taught the three characteristics of existence. And so he really emphasized the first characteristic of existence of change, impermanence, the profundity of change. When we understand (coughs) change, Uh, what we think of or what we take to be I or me, we see clearly that it's just a momentary process of change. We see that every moment is passing away, like the breath, like the sound, like like clouds in the sky. Even if you see a, a meteor, a star, fall in the sky, it's, it's like you get that sense of how quickly and suddenly change can happen. Understanding change helps us to cut through any identification with experience as I or me or mine. And it's, it's out of understanding change uh, that transformation happens. And the transformation is really important. We transform our understanding of life so that there's more acceptance of how life is. There's more acceptance of change and more peace. There's less trying to change thoughts. We just let them come and go. There's less attempt to get rid of aversion or attachment. We can step back and not react to it and let it come and go. When we can understand change, there's less resistance to change. And because we can understand change, we can understand dukkha, the second characteristic of existence. We understand that the world is so insecure that we really never know what's going to happen. There's a kind of poignant vulnerability or sometimes an aching vulnerability to life. And that's this experience of dukkha. When we can understand change, we can also understand anatta, or emptiness. That because everything appears, disappears, we see that experience itself is very insubstantial. And out of understanding this uh, insubstantiality of experience, we take experience less and less personally. So if there's aversion, it's just aversion, not mine. If there's confusion, it's just confusion, not mine. Or if we're getting another root canal, if another tooth is dying, like mine, (laughs) another tooth is dying, it's not (laughs) my root canal. It's just a root canal. <laughs> Another <laughs> root canal. 
<laughs> Pretty soon I figured there's not going to be any more root canals to go. <laughs> we sure have a lot of teeth. <laughs> we can see change in a really microscopic way, very quick, like a meteor. Like when I came up here, I saw a star fall, and it's very quick. Or we might see the body changing over a lifetime. You know, that's very slow. Or, you know, universes appearing and disappearing. That's, again, quite slow. Dinosaurs coming and going, or turtles, or planets. Our own Earth is alive, comes and goes. So within our own body-mind, there's the physical sensations, there's breath, there's sound, there's consciousness itself, there's mindfulness, fear, equanimity. Everything conditioned passes away. And it's, it's, it's like all of us could talk for the rest of the three months retreat about change. You know, that's how profound it is. And the teachings revolve around it, so it's important to ask ourselves at times, how are we relating to change? Wisdom is relating to change with acceptance. And we see out of this understanding that we really don't need to do anything with what's happening. We don't have to do anything with thoughts. We don't have to do anything with emotions. We don't have to do anything with the earth. (laughs) You know, that it does come and go by itself. But we don't need to do anything with what's happening, but we need to show up. You know, it's just basically showing up for life and showing up for more and more of our experience. If we look at how we relate to experience when we first start to practice, usually there's so little of how life is that we're able to accept And I see the practice as a gradual opening to more and more of the range or fullness of what it is to be a human being. If we see clearly, we can have a relationship of, it's a kind of exquisite softness with how life is. And that's when the struggle um, isn't happening. We really are at peace. And we can relate to life like the clouds were today. I was amazed that after the storm, how beautiful these clouds were today, coming and going. The, uh, if you ever feel like things are getting too solid, and, or if you feel like you're going too fast, it's always interesting to just go out and look up at the clouds. Because they're so, they're so light, they're so full of change. They're amazing. I was noticing over the last period of days that there was a change that happened that I wasn't aware of um, right away. And I noticed a couple of days ago, about two days before the storm came, that I was having trouble breathing more than usual. Um, And it was like my body started to swell up a little in the place where there's very little room to breathe kind of closed up. And then I was starting to um, sniffle and just hard to breathe. And I kept thinking, well, why is that happening? And any time I ask myself, why is this happening? I I remember, wait a minute, 
it is happening. You know, it's always going from why to it is. So I just was okay with it. The next day, it got so much more intense. I was just sneezing and sniffling and, you know, what is this? why is this happening? Did I eat something funny? You know, did I, was I, am I allergic to something? What happened? The next day, a storm came. And it was just, I could breathe again. It was like this kind of buildup of pressure uh, and moisture, the elements. And it was so interesting for me to look back and see that all the ways I had tried to figure it out, it had nothing to do with what I was trying to figure out. And it was just, it was inevitably, it was just being okay with how it was. But it it amazes me how sensitive our bodies really are. You know, anyone who has any arthritis will notice when it gets muggy uh, or uh, rainy like yesterday, like tropical kind of weather, the body swells up. We're very sensitive. We're so much part of how the earth is. We, We aren't separate from it. Or some people were talking about today about how the storm affected them, like the moods, how emotions really got affected, whether it was sadness or vulnerability or just these wild swings of mood. Again, we're very, we're very part of how things are. We're not separate. We tend to limit ourselves so much you know, the range of what we find acceptable or understandable um, is so small. And the more we close off to the experiences of life that we don't understand or that we find difficult or unpleasant, uh, the more we close off to all of life, the more we feel separate, the more we can welcome and accept change the more we really can understand about life and be happy. So, for example, if it's not okay for us to experience anger, we close off to all of life at that moment that anger appears. Or if if we're not okay with experiencing confusion, if we're attached to clarity, when confusion comes, what is our relationship to that? Because if if we can't be open to that change, then we close off to all of life. You know, so if the direction of the practice is going in a direction where you're closing off more because one's getting attached to clarity, for example, that's sad, you know, because the, the range of the practice is meant to open up to all experience, no matter what's happening. If we are only open to the experience of equanimity or balance, what happens when the mind is reacting? What happens when change happens? Which it will. Equanimity isn't permanent. Clarity isn't permanent. It's a, it's a vulnerable world because of this change. The other day I went for a walk and I I was by a stream and I came upon a great blue heron. And I don't know if you know this bird, but it's quite a tall bird with very long legs. And its color is like pewter, bluish pewter, silver. Uh, They're beautiful birds. 
the wind was coming toward me, you know, away from the bird toward me, and I couldn't tell at first if the bird saw me. This bird had the most powerful concentration you know, I've ever seen. It was just, I watched it, it seemed like for hours. It's just, I could move, I could stand still, but it was just totally focused on the stream and, you know, any kind of fish that might, <laughs> you know, it was a fishing bird uh, looking for food. Uh, the stillness of this bird was extraordinary. The concentration, it was like it was perfect stillness, perfect concentration. And I feel like we can learn a lot from a bird like this. It's, it's not that we're fishing for fish. We're, we're trying to understand life. And it's like we need to be still to be able to see clearly. It's out of seeing clearly that we understand. We're about a month into this retreat. It takes about a month to get still. It takes time to get quiet. Sometimes it's three weeks for some people, sometimes a month, but generally, maybe a little longer, but generally there's usually a sense of stillness that happens and a long retreat around this time in the retreat. And out of this stillness, just like with the great blue heron, you know, there's something that comes out of it. There's a reason for this stillness. We can see all of these layers of reality that were hidden from us before because we weren't, the mind was too distracted. We're much quieter now, much stiller. And we come across things that, it's like, you know, the saying, there's more than meets the eye. Uh, we're going into deeper and deeper water. When you go into deep water in the ocean, it's very hard to orient oneself. It's very hard to measure where one is. Or if you're out in the tundra in the North or South Pole, there's a there's a way in which all the landscape looks the same, and it's really easy to get lost. Or if one's out in certain kinds of desert, it's the same. It's like the landscape tends to um, be really difficult to orient oneself within. Uh, and this is how it feels to me in a long retreat. At a certain point, it's like the practice becomes fathomless. You know, it's measureless. Uh, so as we go into the retreat, it's similar to these landscapes of deep ocean or tundra. And it seems funny to me because I think the quieter we get, the more we try to figure out where we are. You know, it's really funny. As it becomes more and more fathomless, the thoughts will come up to try to orient ourselves because it is fathomless. So there'll be an urge to try to know where we are, or we might start comparing where we are with other retreats, or try to figure out the practice analytically. Um, and they're all ways of trying to fathom, you know, is there progress? Am I going backwards? Am I at the beginning? And again, I think we tend to have such a limited view of our practice it's, it's important to see that no matter who we are, what we understand about our practice is like the tip of an iceberg. It's very, it's so much is happening that we can't fathom. 
And there are a lot of surprises, you know. Suddenly one will see that one is um, much more quiet than one thought one was. Or you'll see that you relate to something that you've had difficulty with and suddenly that you, you know how to do it with more skill. I find nature a teacher for these kind of surprises. Uh, there's a plant, a bush or tree called witch hazel. Some of you might know witch hazel from putting it on, on yourself. It's a medicinal herb, but it's also a tree. And in, in New England, it's the only tree that flowers at this time of year. The rest flower in the spring. And I've seen witch hazel flower in the snow here. And it's, it's such a surprise. They have, it has these very tiny yellow flowers. And to know that there's some plants that are flowering in the winter, you know, that's, it's an amazing thing. And that's how our practice is. Sometimes we'll feel like it's really winter, but actually there's something flowering. One of the most amazing things to me about the trees here is that they're all ready for next spring. You know, they, all their buds are all ready for next spring, and yet it's autumn. There's a Native American Chippewa saying, as my eyes search the prairie, I feel the summer in the spring. You know, it's like one really has to understand that there's a lot of things ripening in our practice, but we can't see them. There's summer in the spring or uh, flowering in the winter. Reps has a very short little saying. It's called announcement. It's two lines. Announcement. Each seed is each seed's child. You know, and that's how our understanding is. Each seed is each seed's child. Mindfulness is like this. Anytime we remember to come back to the present moment, it conditions another moment to remember to come back to the present moment. That's each seed is each seed's child. Each moment of mindfulness conditions another child of mindfulness. Even though we can't control when that will appear, it will appear. And so it takes a, just a certain surrender of, of, again, you show up, we show up, we do the best we can, but then it's letting go of control because we can't control when that seed will appear. So we might think I don't we we might think I don't have very good concentration, or everyone else here is more balanced than I am, or I have too little emotion, or I have too much emotion, or my heart needs to open more, you know, or my favorite would be I'm not deep enough. You know, there was always this feeling that I could be deeper. In one of my first retreats. I went to my teacher and I was complaining that I wasn't deep enough. And I, w- I was judging my practice mercilessly, just mercilessly. So I went into him and he said, 
very sarcastically, don't go so deep, you dig your own grave. <laughs> I was so shocked. <laughs> I was like, dig? Oh, well, I thought we were trying to go deep. And it really, <laughs> I guess we're not digging a casket, you know. It was just really shocking to me that he had that kind of an answer. Uh, <laughs> But what I did with it was I just started questioning, well, what is deep? You know, what does it mean? What does depth of practice mean? You you hear that word so much. And I think that when we hear the word deep, there's often a feeling that we have to try to go deeper. And so I wanted to talk a bit about, well, what does deep mean? If we can actually notice our moment-to-moment experience with pure attention, with a non-judgmental attention, we're actually on the surface of what's happening. The surface is deep. Life changes very delicately, moment by moment, and clear is deep. Seeing clearly, the surface is deep. Understanding what's happening is deep, but that doesn't mean you have to kind of dig deep in terms of the, the, the sensations or the mind. It's, it's almost like you stay on the surface of, of sensation. You stay on the surface of sound. You stay on the surface of thought. You, you, it's, it's almost opposite of what it sounds. So we're just noticing in Vipassana what comes to the surface of our experience. We're not digging, we're not getting a shovel out. So for example, if we really notice uh, air element with moving the leg, uh, it's very delicate to pick up pressure or pulling or tightness. It's delicate, but it's really just very light surface. Seeing it clearly is the depth. Or having a mood of sadness. It's not like you have to go somewhere deep to experience that sadness. That sadness, the mood of it is very much on the surface. It's seeing it clearly and understanding it that's deep. And this was something that, you know, deepened for me. My understanding of this deepened for me over time, especially with sound because sound is very surfacey. It's, it's again something that you meet with a kind of soft, receptive attention. And you don't have to dig deep <laughs> to hear. It's just very light, surfacey. And if you can relate to all of other experience as you would with a sound, you get that sense of how it's very surfacey experience. When I first um, was trying to note the way Upandita wanted me to notice, experience, and report it, when I came in to talk about the rising and falling movement, I thought I was supposed to be noticing so much. I, you know, I think I was supposed to be noticing burning, coolness, pulling, pressure, tingling, you know, just on and on and on and on. And I felt like such a failure. And I'd go in and I felt like, you know, a dog with my ears down and my tail down and just like, finally I had the guts to just say what I noticed. And it was just light pressure moving. 
And I, it was like that ability to just be honest kind of broke through for me, my understanding about it, because it was just so simple. It's, it's all I noticed, and it was just what I was noticing. And that's all I noticed with the breath for three months. It was just pressure, <laughs> light pressure moving. Over time, I started to notice, when I stopped struggling with that it should be other things, I slowly started to notice that the pressure moved slowly. You know, and then if I might notice the pressure was medium pressure or strong pressure or light pressure, but for a long time, for three months, it was just pressure. There wasn't, you know, coolness moving or there wasn't tingling. It was very interesting for me to get that ability to just accept actually how much it seemed this, it was very surfacey, And the more I kind of just let it be, the lighter it got. The more light it got, the lighter it got, the more it started to disappear. The more I let it be how it was. So this is bare attention. Just, just noticing whatever's there just as it is without adding anything to it, and accepting that that's how life is. We don't always want to accept that that's what the body is. Fire element, earth element, water element, air element, coming and going. You know, we, that kind of cuts through the idea that I am something solid. And again, it's like the stillness is what allows us, the stillness of mind is what allows us to see with that kind of delicacy and bareness. The birth and death of a moment is very delicate. The birth and death of a sound is very delicate. Understanding something about the nature of life happens out of this purity of awareness itself. And this understanding is what we call depth. Understanding change, anicca, understanding dukkha, understanding anatta. Uh, This is all the depth. So sometimes you might notice the movement of the breath, and it's just light pressure moving. And there might not be any understanding with it. So it won't feel like that much is happening. But there's more (laughs) happening than you realize. Really try not to judge the practice. At times we might have an understanding that there's no me, no breath, but just air element coming and going. We might have an understanding that what we call breath is changing that it's alive, that it's never the same, one breath after another. We might get a sense of the preciousness of the human birth from that understanding, the vulnerability that if we don't take another breath, we're kind of stuck. You know, that's scary, that we never know if we're going to take another breath, is an understanding of dukkha, vulnerability. If we understand that no one is breathing, there's just breathing, that's an understanding of anatta, of emptiness. 
the understanding can be very light. It can be very wispy. It can be very soft. It can feel deep. But understanding comes and goes. What's really hard in this practice, I think the hardest thing of all, is that that just that, that understanding comes and goes. And any time it comes, it's really out of our control. It's a kind of grace. You know, depth has a, a quality of grace to it, or benediction. And so again, to remember over and over again that all we can do is to show up, <laughs> that the understanding will happen by itself. We don't have to try to make the depth, depth happen. When I lived in northern Maine, I went to a World Vegetarian Conference in the summer of 1975. And I went to a bookstore at the University of Maine, which is where this was. And I found a book called Beginning to See. And it was by a teacher named Sujata. And the book had little stick figures of human beings. You know, and there would be no face, just a round a round circle for a face, so the, and the bodies were totally empty. <laughs> and it was such a simple, simple book. And so in each page, there'd be a different thing the stick figure human being was doing. So the first page was a stick figure walking. And it said, there is no one who walks, only walking. Next page, a human being empty, eating. There is no one who eats only eating. Next page, <laughs> a body sitting there, an empty head just sitting there, and it said, there is no one who breathes, only breathing. And the book was like that. It was just, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. <laughs> it was just so simple, I couldn't believe it. And yet, you know, I didn't understand it. In, but something went in deeper than my understanding could fathom. It was like it was, it grabbed me. The simplicity of it, the, the simplicity of it was so deep. And that's what I'm trying to say. The practice, the more simple you keep it, the deeper it is. And it's so hard for us because we're so complicated. <laughs> it's almost like you have to pat your head sometimes and say, you know, it's okay. <laughs> I know you think it's complicated, but it's so simple. It's as simple as that book. There is no one who's giving a talk, only talking. There's no one who cries, only crying. There's no one who hears the geese flying over, only hearing. You know, it's, it's just any moment you can say that. And it's so amazingly profound. And that book is what I know. I just shut the book in the bookstore and I said, yeah, that's my path. I, I just understood it. I knew it. Uh, it was so direct and I trusted that directness. So I wrote the person who wrote the book and this woman who worked for him wrote me back and said, yeah, there's a three-month retreat happening in Bucksport, Maine, and you can come in for the last two weeks. And it was so simple. <laughs> I mean, for me at that time, if it had even happened in Massachusetts, I probably wouldn't have come. And it was so incredible to have it just very close to me. Karmically, it was an amazing um, experience. 
And I've always been thankful for running into that book and the simplicity. If it had been something where even if the pictures had said something and then there were these long, complicated explanations, it wouldn't have affected me that deeply. So we learn to relate to the coming and going of breath, that it's okay, it appears and disappears. There's nothing to do with it, but just notice it come and go. With sound, with body sensations, with thoughts, with emotions, mental states, we can have this relationship to change of just showing up, noticing it, and at times understanding will come. The other day, um, I took a walk, and this was just a few days ago, and the walk where I'd seen the great blue heron was a week before, and on that walk, I just, it was one of these most amazingly magical days. It was one on the weather when it was in the 80s here, and I just saw lots of animals, and I had this very powerful time. And so when I went on for this walk just a few days ago, I was trying so hard not to be attached to the walk that I'd had before, <laughs> but I couldn't let it go. You know, it was like it was just so magical. And I kept telling myself, this is a new day, this is a new walk, you don't need to compare. And anytime you know you're having those kind of thoughts, you know you're already caught, you know. <laughs> And I was just, I was fighting it, you know, I was like, I'm not attached to that other walk, you know. <laughs> I've let it go. And the thoughts kept bombarding me, you know, it was like, this isn't good enough. This walk is much worse than the other one. I'm and then it was like, oh, I'm so tired. I felt tired. I'm not as open. I'll, I won't see any animals. You know, I was just getting more, more and more negative. Uh, and finally, I just thought, you know, come on. Oh, yeah, it's just wanting. It's so amazing. You see, it's, it's, I could just talk myself till I was blue in the face that I wasn't attached. You know, it's okay, it's just another day, this is a wonderful day. You know, anytime you're bargaining with yourself like that, or you're trying to rationalize with yourself, it's too complicated. One knows one is caught, and that the answer, if you're suffering in anyway is usually incredibly simple. You know, this is why I love the Buddhist teaching, because it all boils down to check for wanting <laughs> or check for not wanting. <laughs> you know, I like that. That's like really easy, you know. <laughs> With the way my memory's going, <laughs> my memory's getting so bad, it's good that it all, only two things to remember. <laughs> wanting or not wanting. Okay, well, so keep it simple. What's really happening? Wanting. But I didn't want wanting to be happening. <laughs> I wanted my magical day. And I thought wanting was ruining it, you know? But if I could open to it, it's that same thing, acceptance. Once I opened to it, it was an okay day. It might have not quite matched the other day. <laughs> it, di it didn't. <laughs> uh, but once I let it go, it was, it was fine. 
It was okay. <laughs> it wasn't great. <laughs> and that's what's kind of hard. I mean, just because we accept that it's a different day, I really let go of the wanting, it doesn't make it magical. You know, it made it what it was. It wasn't neutral. It wasn't unpleasant. It was pretty good, you know. But it wasn't what it was before. There's change, you know, and that's what's so hard for us, is that things change and we can't make them any other way than how they are. When we talk about depth, this is what we're talking about. It's the uncovering of all the complication and just coming down to that simplicity of whether it's wanting or not wanting. That's depth. Understanding that our body, what we call my body, or what we call your body, or what we call a chipmunk's body, or what we call a star, is all this changing earth, air, fire, and water, really can help us um, cut through our sense of separateness, of I or me. And today when I was, um, yesterday and today, I was thinking about how we tend to, we're just borrowing earth element for our body. It's like a container. We borrow air or wind element for our breath. We borrow water, we borrow water element for our thirst to keep our body smoothly running. It's like uh, if you can see that everything that we have is shared with us, we're sharing water element with every being on the planet. It rolls around like that. Um, Every cell of water has been everywhere on this earth. Earth element, you know, it's just amazing when one can start to see that that's what we truly are made of, this changing, interconnected elements. When we're eating, it's a wonderful place to be aware of this because, you know, when we're eating, at a certain point, if you're eating something, what, what point is it you? Is it you when you're looking at your plate of food? Say, oh, we've had a lot of potatoes lately. <laughs> you know, like, say you're looking at a potato, um, and you're looking there, at what point when you're lifting the home fry or the frittata, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, is it me? Uh, and then at what point when you're noticing urine come out, is that you? Or if you notice hair on your hairbrush, is that you? You know, these are really important things to understand, question. I'd like to read a quotation from a woman called Daisy Bates, and it's from a book called Daisy Bates in the Desert. A Woman's Life Among the Aborigines. And this woman was amazing. She, um, at 54 years old, in 1913, so 1913, at 54 years old, she went to the desert to live with the aborigines. She left her culture. And at that time on this planet, that was really weird. 
you know, for a white person to go live with the Aborigines. I mean, it was totally weird. She was really rejected by her culture. So this is a little something from her diary. I couldn't sleep last night. I lay on my back and stared at the stars until I seemed to be out there with them in the darkness. The sky was breathing. I could feel the cavity of the night expanding and contracting around me as if I was in the belly of the universe. It has been so quiet recently with no one to talk to. Even the birds and lizards have deserted me. All except for the butcher bird, but I wish he would go away and leave me alone. In the afternoons, I sit and watch the shadows of the trees and bushes lengthening across the red sand. Sometimes I get out of my chair and move forward very gently so that my own shadow merges with these bushes' shadows, and for a little while I can feel as if I have turned into a bush or a tree. That's quiet. When the body breaks down in any way, it's a wonderful time to notice how little control we have. It's like with this root canal coming. I've had so many. I notice the moment it starts, it's like twang. (laughs) There's just this, it's sudden. It's like suddenly I feel the sensation. It's like the tooth says, I'm dying. But in another level, that's just a concept. It's just tightening. It's just sensitivity. It's just earth element, air element, water element, fire element, coming and going. I don't know anything more powerful for, for learning to let go of control than the body going through sickness or trouble. Because it just cuts through. You, one has to let go of control. You know, there's, remember when there were so many people sick and there still are a few people with colds, it's like the kind of surrender one has to go through is so powerful. People will think that they have to wait till they stop being sick for their practice to be okay. But actually, that's really, you know, getting a cold is incredible practice in itself. The body being a changing process, it doesn't mean that we don't care about it, uh, take care of it, but it also means that we can't force healing. You know, we, we, we take care of ourselves and let the body do it itself. And there's a, this is a, another Australian um, writer. I don't say his name right. His name is Linig. And it's from the prayer tree, and it's about getting a cold. He said, God bless those who suffer from the common cold. This is for all of you who got this cold. <laughs> God bless those who suffer from the common cold. Nature has entered into them, has led them aside, and gently lain them low to contemplate life from the wayside, to consider human frailty, to receive the deep and dreamy messages of fever. 
We give thanks for the insights of this humble perspective. We give thanks for blessings in disguise. One of the things I had really wanted to try to get to in the talk, and I'm thinking I will, is uh, in regard to noticing emotions and how they come and go, like sound or thought or breath. Uh, and really looking for the corresponding physical sensations when an, when an emotion appears. Sometimes there won't be any corresponding physical sensations with an emotion, and that's okay too. I'm not saying that it should happen that way. Sometimes emotions will feel like they come like the tide coming in in the ocean and go out like a tide going out. They'll be very slow, they'll be confusing, that you won't really know what they are. One might never know what they are. Sometimes um, there can be a, like a constellation of emotion all together that's kind of intertwined. Um, but sometimes, say with sadness, and say there's a little um, tingling of, of tears coming, like rain sprinkling out of the sky. It's like that's water element. Sometimes you'll feel sadness and you'll actually feel the body kind of swell up, like the storm coming. It's possible to relate to emotion like you would the weather. And it, it's very important to notice how the body is with this emotion. It's a, it's a mental state, but it's also, usually there's physical sensations and it's helpful to ground the attention with these physical sensations because it can help cut through the identification with the emotion as me or I or mine. For example, with crying, with most of emotion, most of us tend to be conditioned to have some resistance to emotion and think that it's not okay. But if one relates to crying as if it's like a rainstorm, that if you felt the power of this storm that just came through, you can see that it's very cleansing and purifying. Water element does that. Crying can be like that. If you see, if you just sat there with it or lay there with it or wherever one is with it, out in the woods with it, and you just know water element, it's wonderful. It's okay. One time when I was driving along in the car, I heard the end, the end of a Stevie Wonder song. And he said, every tear we cry builds strength. Every tear we cry builds strength. So we can notice um, moods or emotions come and go. It can be slow, it can be quick, it can be a mental state, it can be noticing physical sensations. Anger, which is one of my favorites, um, because I imagine a volcano going off. And I love volcanoes. You know, it's like I used to resist anger so much. And when I first moved to Hawaii and I saw a volcano, it just shifted that resistance to that amazing fire and burning um, contraction to this is an experience that's part of life 
and is okay to experience. Sadness is an experience that comes and goes in life. Anger is an experience that comes and goes in life. And it's because we think it shouldn't be there, if we don't understand it, that it becomes a problem. It's often, you know, if you remember the talks about if there's an unpleasant feeling and we don't notice it right in that moment, the next moment is aversion. That's one second. Okay, two seconds go by. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't quite notice that aversion. Three seconds have gone by and we have a lot of aversion. Four seconds go by, we're still not quite mindful. Just four seconds, this is quick. We have a lot of aversion. You know, and <laughs> it builds. The, the less mindful we are, it builds. Uh, and it, then it becomes suddenly, this is good practice, five seconds, <laughs> anger. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're just noticing, wow, anger. And uh, instead of, oh no, not anger, it can be, wow, fire element, you know, earth element. <laughs> it's incredible. It's interesting if one can relate to it with this understanding that the body is earth, air, fire, and water coming and going. And the emotions are very connected with body. They're very connected with these elements. Anger is often fire element out of balance. Confusion. Even good old confusion, uh, I think of it as fog. And sometimes it'll feel like just a little bit of fog. <laughs> and sometimes it'll feel like a lot of fog. But fog, if you think about it, it's just water and air element. The mind can be like that. It's just kind of not able to quite focus. It's not able to see clearly. And it's okay. One doesn't have to make clarity happen. One can relate to the confusion as just another experience that comes and goes. You don't have to change it. One can experience it. And again, to be able to ground that awareness in physical sensation is really helpful. It's not so personal when we see that connection between these changing elements and our own emotions. This is a poem by Robert Frost, and it's called Fire and Ice. Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. Fire, ice, cold, burning, emotion. It's such a... Um, helpful way of relating to ourselves. Understanding change in relationship to the world of thought. In the last talk I was talking about how quickly thoughts appear and thoughts are moving much quicker than physical sensations. They're much harder to see clearly. Uh, and 
whether it's planning or judging or fantasizing, whether it's an emotion of fear or terror or anger, it's important to remember to ask ourselves, do I control that these appear? Am I my mind? Am I my thoughts? Am I my emotions? If one really can be honest with the mind, with the heart, these thoughts are appearing much quicker than we could ever control. (laughs) You couldn't possibly think that thought, have control over thinking that thought. It's happening quicker than you could control it. My sister had three children, and I spent a lot of time raising them. And my youngest uh, nephew, Tony, I saw him the other day, and we were reminiscing about when he was a little kid with me. And it was very um, fun to do. And I was reminding him that one time I took him to his first movie in a theater. And when he came out, when we were driving in the car, He was very pensive. You know, he's just sitting there really deeply thinking. And I said, you know, what's up, Tony? (laughs) What's going on? And he looked at me and he just kind of pointed around. And he said, this is all a movie, isn't it? (laughs) You know, and it was just, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who who are you anyway? <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> Having a relationship with our mind. It's just a movie. Pretend somebody else is at the projector. <laughs> It, anything you can do to help depersonalize it. You know, that's what the practice is all about. Understanding change is understanding that it's just a movie. Frame by frame. Um, and you can turn around and look at the projectionist. You can turn around, you can look at the film. It's just the mind is like this film that's just changing. It's not in our control. And the less you control it, the more you can just step back and notice that it's just a movie. One takes it less and less personally. There's more happiness and peace. There's such a range of change. You know, there's the level of the body, there's a level of the heart, there's a level of the mind, and there's a level of world systems, there's a level of this earth system that we're on. And worlds come and go. And, you know, just as we need to be able to care for our body, care for our heart, and care for our mind with a balance of care and detachment, it's important to to relate to our own world, our own earth that way, with this balance of care and attachment. We care about it, and yet there is a way in which the world has its own life. Last year I was in Hopi land, um, which is a native tribe in 
this country that has stayed pretty intact in terms of its culture. And recently, there's been a lot of pressure of the our culture on that culture. And I met a man that um, carved kachina dolls. He's a, one of the best that there is. And I was felt very lucky to meet him. And Steve and I went to his house and showed us some of his most amazing um, carvings. And he was just starting to reminisce about the old days when he was young, growing up there. And he said there have been so many changes. And so he just mentioned a few. One was that he said that when he was growing up, he doesn't remember an elder ever raising their voice to a child. You know, not even a memory of someone raising a voice to a child. And he said that that's really changing as the influence of our culture comes in. And then he said that there were no cars. And when he would work on his cornfield, he had to walk five miles to work on the corn. And then he walked five miles back. Now that was, that was their, their way of life. And there's a whole um, set of prophecies that the Hopis believe in, and a whole understanding of the world and this earth and the changing of these world, the world that is very powerful. So they believe that human beings have already destroyed this world three times, and that we're in the fourth world, and that we're actually <laughs> showing great signs of such degeneracy that they're pretty sure that this world will get destroyed soon, you know, that if we follow the path that we're on. And in talking with him, you know, we were, you know, he had a different language in some ways than I did, but when he said that, there was just such a sense of that care and detachment. It's like he really cared, but it was like, oh well. You know, this, if this is what's going to happen, it's, it's happened before, we know about it, it, will, it can happen again. And there was a real sense of it being okay. Just, it, the world comes, it goes, it'll come again, it'll go. This deep acceptance of how it is. Of course, we don't want it to be that way, but if it does happen that way, can we be at peace with it? We do our best to, to make it not happen. We do our best to take care of our body or our mind. And then it's letting things happen as they happen. So this is the, the deep meaning of that chant, you know, all, th- all conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. It's not the happiness that things go our way. It's the happiness of really deeply understanding how life is and not struggling with that. There are deeper and deeper and deeper levels of understanding that. You know, it's like there's no end to the depth of understanding this. I'd like to end with a um, little poem, Chinese, from long ago, from the Longmen village. 
It's called autumn. Refusing worldly worries, I stroll among village strollers. Pine winds sing. The evening village smells of grass, autumn in the air. A lone bird roams down the sky. Clouds roll across the river. Do you want to know my name? A hill, a tree, an empty drifting boat. Do you want to know my name? A hill, a tree, an empty drifting boat. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.